Hey, this is John, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adult Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org forward slash young adults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message. To refuse to ever step into a church, but they would go into someone's living room week in and week out. Um, and, and there would be stories that ended like this where it'd say, man, this community is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And, and I want you to know that's not because the leaders and I are, are special or because we planned it so perfectly, but, but that's because of what you guys have done. Like you were a community of Jesus followers that were loving and inviting. And then when you invited people, people were drawn and people stayed. You all just kind of did it. But I'm, like, I'm curious, what would happen if we were intentional about that this summer? Like what if we were super intentional about inviting people into this community? What would the results look like? Because I think that is what is set before us this summer. Like we have a chance to intentionally look at our community events, our summer gatherings, our uh, summer house church and say, listen, I love this for my community. I love this for us. But who in my life could I share this experience with and expose them to a community established in the love and power and grace of God? What if that was our aim this summer? To invite people into this community, even if they don't know Jesus and begin to share the gospel with them. Because this practice of invitation and, and gospel uh, proclamation is what people in the church call uh, evangelism or missional living. I'm sure you might have heard that. And if not, I'll, I'll explain what it is. It's mission, living on mission or being evangelistic is just living a life of invitation, sharing the gospel. It's meant to be part of our day-to-day -day life with Jesus. It's what Jesus had in mind when he, set, when he purposed and sent out the early church in Matthew 28. He says, go and make disciples. But I think that even though we hear that invitation, we hear that command from Jesus, uh, many of us shy away from sharing the gospel or, or inviting non-Christians into our biblical communities. And, and genuinely, I think there are very valid reasons for that. For one, like, I don't know about you, but I know for me, I can often feel inadequate to share my faith. I don't feel very good at it. I don't know how to go about expressing how Jesus has transformed my life, even though it should be the simplest thing, right? He just did it. But underlying that, I think the real reason, or one of the reasons why we're so afraid to share our faith is because there's this undercurrent in our culture that, that, that prides itself on saying, listen, you live your own truth. You know, the thought is that there's no such thing as one singular truth. So I must go in pursuit of my own satisfying truth. Is it any surprise then that what deeply permeates our society is this overwhelming sense of lostness? Because how do you know you've found truth? Just think for a moment. How do you know you found it? How long will that sense of truth last for you? What if others don't accept your truth? And like, that just seems like a tiring set of exercises. And if you try and say, oh no, I, I have a way. Instantly you're seen as arrogant because if you found a way, that means there is a way. And what makes you so special to think that you've found the way and the rest of us are just lost? And I think that's why there's this interesting like, 
curiosity and rejection about religion and spirituality because, because people are searching for their way in this world and they're going from thing to, to, to thing to provide an answer and, and religion and spirituality provides some kind of parameters and, and, and for us to kind of figure out who we are. And so, you know, when someone says, yes, I, I found the way they, to not face backlash, they say, well, well this is my truth. <laughs> Don't worry. Like, you can find your own. I hope you find yours, but this works for me. And I think that tendency has become part of our vernacular or our, uh, our stance as Christians in the church. We begin to think, say things like, who am I to tell people that Jesus is the only way to eternal life? Isn't it arrogant for me to claim that only Jesus satisfies? Aren't I just acting morally superior when I say there is only one way to live out my time on earth? And those thoughts begin to attach and deeply root themselves in the crevices of our hearts and our minds. And so we either don't share the gospel or, or we do so with timidity and fear. But then I look at the life of Jesus and that posture is just so different, right? Like he had agency and purpose when he told people about the kingdom of God. Jesus shared the gospel with everyone, rich and poor, healthy and sick, Jew and Gentile. And I'm not sure anyone would look at Jesus and say, like, you're pretty arrogant, dude. In fact, Jesus ticked a lot of people off, not because he was arrogant when he taught, but because he shared the gospel with people that people thought should, didn't deserve it. And so Jesus sat often with sinners and outcasts of his time, and he invited people into the kingdom of God all the time. And the reason for that was because he knew the heart behind evangelism, which is what we'll be talking about tonight. You see, often we want to hear how it is that we can share our faith, and I think that's great. Listen, as a church, as Mosaic Church, we are committed as a staff, as an eldership team, as a pastoral team, to equip our church to share their faith. But I want us more to explore tonight why it is that we share our faith. And my hope is that as we learn the why, we will go into the summer with purpose and desire to use all our events as an opportunity to invite people into biblical community. So let's open up our Bibles to Luke chapter 15. And I want us just to uh, backtrack just to verses one and two, and I'll explain why in a second. As we look through, if you were to read chapter 15 of Luke, you will see that there are three uh, well-known parables. Uh, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then the parable of the prodigal son. And now, parables in the time of Jesus is what we would consider uh, folk tales today. They are stories that express a, a, more, a moral truth or a truthful reality. Um, the best examples I had for us is like the boy who cried wolf or Humpty Dumpty, right? Like those are just like kids' tales, but they teach us something about life. But the way that Jesus uses parables or these stories is, is a little different because Jesus came to tell the world about the kingdom of God. And so he shared what life in the kingdom would look like and he would teach them about the king of the kingdom, God. And in our world today, we hear the word kingdom of God and even in our circles and we have a general glimpse of what that could mean and what that could look like. But if you were to go to the first century and talk to a Jew at the time and say, do you know about the kingdom of God? They're like, huh? What's that? 
And so Jesus would use parables to teach people about some element pertaining to the kingdom of God. He, he'd say the kingdom of God is like, and it'd be some outlandish thing, but, but Jesus would use everyday examples uh, that people understood to convey kingdom truths. And so what Jesus, so what, what causes Jesus to use a parable in this chapter is a conversation he's having with Pharisees. See, Jesus just was always ticking off a Pharisee. Like you should just know this. Like if you've never read the gospels, just know if you do, he's always having beef with the Pharisees. But in this particular instance, the Pharisees were upset because Jesus was spending time with people who didn't follow God and by the Pharisees' standards were outcasts. And so Luke chapter 15, verse one, just read it with me very quickly. It says that the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And as that happened, verse two, the Pharisees began and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives, he welcomes, he invites sinners and he eats with them. So the Pharisees just could not understand and could not fathom why Jesus would associate himself with these people. In their minds, they were asking Jesus, why would you sit with sinners? And these parables are his response. And so Jesus tells the story of a shepherd who lost the sheep. He had a hundred of them, one left. He, went, he left the 99 and searched for the one. He finds them in great rejoicing. He tells a story about a woman who had 10 silver coins and she lost one coin. And as a young adult, you get it. You're broke. If you lose a coin, you're going to find that coin. All right. And she finds it. She celebrates. She finds her friends and they have a feast. I guess she spent all the 10 coins. Right. And then you have this final one. And so Jesus begins to tell the story about a man who had two sons. And so now we can just go back to verse 11. And you can read along, but I'm just going to kind of go through the story as I would imagine it. And so one day, the, the younger son, for whatever reason, Jesus says, he goes to his father and says, Dad, listen, I want you to give me my inheritance. Now, if you know anything about inheritances, you know that you only get it when the party who's going to you inherit from dies. And so you inherit it. Inheritance. You're welcome for that grammar lesson. Now, this is a crazy thing to ask for. Because scholars all agree on this one thing, that for the son's request to be understood is better understood like this. He wasn't saying, dad, would you give me my inheritance? He says, dad, I wish you were dead so I could receive what is mine. Now, universally, this is a very alarming statement, right? Like, I know we've all been there. Like, we've all been kind of ticked at our parents. And we wouldn't say it out loud, but we're going to say, I wish you would. Mm. Maybe not you, I have. And, you, and if someone heard that, you'd be like, oh, that's a little much, and for those listening to this parable, as Jesus is teaching, they would have been appalled. Like, like, remember, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, but the sinners and tax collectors are there as well. And so they would all understand the cultural norms. You don't wish death upon your mother or your father. You throw honor and, and towards your parents, not shame or death. And so when they hear Jesus say this about the younger son, they would be like, I'm a sinner, but that dude is bad. But then what happens next is equally alarming. The father says yes. And so the father divvies up his property and the son takes it and he leaves home. And where does the son go? The story says that he just goes to a far country. And you might begin to wonder, what is it that the son is searching for? What is it that the son thinks he will find outside of the father's home that is worth abandoning all that he had with his father? And so while he's in the far country, he blows all his money, which I mean, like seems 
up to par with his character. A couple of days ago, he just wished his father was dead. And so he blows all his money. He squanders it. And then it says, a famine came upon the land and the son began to be in need. Now at this point, Jesus' audience probably thought, yeah, that kid, that's such a punk. He wanted his dad dead. This is what he gets. I hope he dies. You know, like that's, because that's what you're, like you want justice to be served in those moments. Like how dare he? What an ungrateful punk that he would want his father dead so he could have some money to squander. And then Jesus goes on to say that the younger son went out and looked for a job. I mean, the son is a jerk, but he's not an idiot. And so he knows he needs to find a way to make money because there's a famine and there's nothing else that he has. He squandered it all. And now there's something interesting about the kind of job that he ends up getting. See, he was hired to take care of pigs, which in the, in the South, like here, that's no big deal. In fact, some, some people own pigs, like to own it as a pet, not for bacon, God bless you. But this is a big deal in Jesus' time. Because for a Jewish person, religious or not, if you were to even bump up against the pig, breathe in this general vicinity of a pig, you were seen as cursed because pigs were considered unclean under the Mosaic law. And so the younger son wasn't just going to bump up against a pig. What was he going to be doing? He's going to be feeding them. He's going to get in the mud with them. He might have to wrestle them. He might have to get them to the trough to eat the food. He's going to be one-on-one with these pigs. I mean, he would do anything at this point to get out of the desperate situation he was in. And now imagine the sun for just a moment covered in mud, smelling like a pig, and more than the oinks from the pig, you just hear the boy's stomach grumble for hunger. And then Jesus says this in verse 16. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He was in great need, but no one could give him anything to help. See, Jesus is beginning to show the Pharisees. He says, listen, look, you're asking me why do I sit with sinners? Look at the people around us right now. They're like the younger brother. These tax collectors and sinners all alike, they are in great need. And they are just as desperate for help and yearning to be filled as the younger brother in the story is. Where else would you like me to send them? If I'm not to sit with them, who am I to sit with? You see, through the, through the younger son, we see Jesus display the human condition fully. Jesus is revealing what life looks like when humanity is not in relationship with God. A humanity that is divorced from God is a life that is full of need, living in a world that cannot supply, surrounded by people who are just as needy. So imagine this, what can humanity do? But keep searching, hoping that one day they will stumble upon a person or place that will fulfill their longings. Just just, just look at our world for just a second. Or, or, or think about where you are in your 20s right now because our 20s can feel like an endless cycle of I have no idea what I'm doing. Where am I going? I never thought I'd be here. I'm almost 30 and my life feels miserable. Anybody there? It's awesome. Thank you for being honest. See, there's this overwhelming sense of lostness that's common to our human condition and it is so clearly seen in our generation. You sense it. 
Like, do you sense the, almost a famine-like experience that this world is in? It longs for, for fulfillment and satisfaction. And in desperation, at any moment, any of us will cling to what the world proclaims are the keys to self-fulfillment. Money, power, status, work, notoriety, sexual gratification, access in food or drink. But I love what Henry Nouwen says. He says, these things that we try to latch onto, it creates the expectation that it will satisfy, but cannot but fail to satisfy our every need. Have you ever wondered why you're so angry all the time? Have you ever wondered why you're so full of resentment? Scared, unsatisfied, lonely, feeling unloved, unwanted, and jealous? It's not because you're in your 20s. It's not something you grow out of. It's because everything we jump to that isn't Jesus fails us. See, outside of Jesus, humanity will be on a never-ending search for meaning, purpose, and satisfaction. Hear me when I say this, please. Humanity is in great need. And that is why Jesus sits with sinners, because they, along with all of humanity, is in great need. But I'm curious, what is it about Jesus that satisfies the yearning of our souls? Have you ever wondered? Have you ever wondered why the broken and weary and outcasts of Jesus' time came to Jesus in droves? Because it was the people that that, that culture and society considered notoriously sinful that Jesus seemed to attract the most. How could that be? What was it that sinners would hear within the words and teachings of Jesus that compelled them to draw near to Jesus? As we return to the parable, we find the younger son still desperate, but he's thinking about how he can get out of his dire circumstances. I am a little silly when I read these stories, so I like to imagine him a little bit like Winnie the Pooh. He's sitting on the floor under a tree, kind of like this. Think, think, think. And if you know Winnie the Pooh, it resonates. If not, welcome to my mind. And as he's having a thinking session, a light bulb comes on. Verse 17 says that he came to himself, which really just means that he came to his senses. And it dawned on him, you know, I know a guy, my dad. You know, my dad's hired servants. They have more than enough bread to eat. Now, that detail is important because it means two things. One, his dad is wealthy. And two, it means his dad is generous because if the hired servants have more than enough bread, it means that the dad is willing to give them more than enough bread to eat. Now, it's an important detail. No, I already explained that. Why? So now the son knows that the father is kind and generous to the hired servants. But what he doesn't know is if his dad will be kind and generous to him. I mean, again, that makes sense, right? Like just a few days ago. He said, I wish you would die. Try telling someone that I mean, like, hey, you want to hang out? Can I come back home? Now, the son has another thinking session. Because he's like, okay, I got to convince my dad. How how am I going to, like, let him, how is he going to, like, let me back in? So he's like, I have a plan. I'm just going to show up unannounced. Like, I'm just going to go. And and I'm going to tell him this. He says in verse 18 and 19. He says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say this to him. 
Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. See, scholars debate the genuineness of the son's apology. Like, does he mean it? Does he not? But after studying this text and thinking through this, I believe that the son is not genuine in his apology. He's genuinely desperate, but I'm not sure he's actually genuinely sorry because what propels him to come home is that he's hungry and he has nothing else and nowhere else to go. That doesn't mean you're sorry. That just means you're needy. And with the few things he has in his possessions, he put it on the back and he goes, I'm going to make my way back home. And Jesus says, as the sun is coming down the hill, far in the distance, the father sees the son. And the son, with great compassion, runs out to his son. Now, it's important to know that men of that time don't do that. It was against a cultural norm for the father to run after their son. But it's even more against cultural norms for a father to run to the son after all that has happened. And what's even more against cultural norms is the way he received his son. Now, see, what I want you to know is what we're about to read is not a normal encounter. There is something special about this. So the text says that the father kissed him. And that word for kiss doesn't just mean it was like a peck or like, oh, a little kiss here. It, it means that he repeatedly would kiss his son all over like he meant it, like he loved him, like he was excited for him to be back. He lavished him with affection. Now imagine the son for a moment. He is clothes tattered, smelling like a pig. He's dirty with mud and he's embraced by his father. And it did not matter that his son smelled like a pig. It didn't matter that he would have his own clothes dirtied. It didn't even matter that the son left home wishing his father dead. He was embraced by his father with full compassion and full love. And the son, like I just can't, I, I just can't even like imagine for a second after all this thing that just happened, my father to hug me. And, and like, I would be kind of confused because I've created this plan, right? Like I have this speech laid out and prepared. I'm gonna convince my dad to let me back home and he's hugging me. What do I do? How do I respond? And so he begins, to, he begins the speech. He goes, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to come back home. I'm not, and, and, and it seems like the father didn't pay attention because he doesn't even let him finish the speech. The father, without hesitation, he calls out to the servants. He goes, get me my best robe. Do you know who owns the best robe in a home? The dad. So he says, get me my robe. My son needs it. Get him a ring. He needs it. Get him some shoes. And they, it, like, I, some of these details kind of like over, like seem to go over our heads because we, we think, okay, great. He gave him like a new wardrobe. No, slaves did not wear shoes. How did he want to come back home as a hired servant, as a slave? And his father says, get my son his shoes. The son was willing to come back as a slave. And the father says, I'm only willing to take you back as a son. You know what I mean? <laughs> and the son just doesn't know what to do. And at this point, the, the story changes trajectory. So for the first time, the boy realized 
that he actually never knew his father and that he had not understood what it was to be his father's son. For the first time, this dwelt on him. My father loves me more than I ever knew. I never knew how much my father truly loved me. You see, by Jewish law, the boy deserved to be stoned. But the father instead takes him back and throws him a freaking party. Here's why. Says this in verse 24. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And this is what Jesus offered to people when he sat with them, particularly sinners. This is why sinners came in droves to Jesus. Because in their world, they would only be met with scorn and rejection. But for the first time in their entire lives, they heard a message that said that no matter how much you've been searching, no matter how much you've lived your life recklessly, no matter how long you've dirtied yourself with the pigs, no matter how much you've run from God, the moment you return to the Father, he will greet you with a love and compassion that knows no bounds. Let me ask you, where are you gonna find that love? Where else are you gonna find it, y'all? I'm just asking a simple question. Where else are you gonna get it? Because it's a love that defies all human logic. That's why sinners sat with Jesus. And that's why Jesus sat with sinners. He wanted them to know that their need was great. Yes, he wants them to know that. Does, does he need them to know that their sin is great? Yes, he wants them to know that. But what Jesus offered them was that while their need and their sin was great, God's love for them was greater. And the famous Puritan pastor, Richard Sibbs, he puts it this way. I could, and literally, as I was writing this today, as I was reading it, I, I literally could not continue typing. It says, there's more mercy in Christ than sin in me. I'm always wondering, will I out-sin God's love today? But he says, there is more mercy in God than sin in you. There's more mercy in the love and power of God than your ability to run from him. There is more mercy in his pinky than an entire life's worth of sin. You can never outsin God's love. And God knows everything about you. I just need you to know this for a second, okay? Just hear me. Just, just listen. Just, just give me your ears for a second, if not now. He knows your secrets. He knows it all. And no matter which way you cut it, the message is the same. God fully loves you and fully knows you. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says, to be loved, to be known, I can't even finish this. To be loved and not fully known is comforting for just a moment. To be known but not fully loved is terrifying. But to be fully loved and to be fully known, that is being loved by God and that is what our hearts yearn for the most. I ask you tonight, do you know this love? 
Do you know it? See, because God is calling prodigals to come home. He's calling the least of us, the worst of us, and even the best of us to come home because this was the purpose of Jesus' entire ministry. All of Jesus' earthly ministry is summed up in Luke 19, verse 10. Speaking about himself, Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, and we were the chief among them. We were the chief among sinners. Paul says it's him, but I'm like, man, you don't know what I've done. See, why Jesus was so had so much agency about sharing the kingdom of God is because he knew the Father's heart. If there's anybody who knows the love of God, it's the Son in Jesus. And so he knows there's nothing greater. There is nothing more magnanimous. There's nothing greater or glorious than the love of God. I want others to know it. But it wasn't that he just wanted people to know it. It's that people did not know it. And so Jesus understood this one reality. God loves sinners. And he's come to save them. See, he wants you and me and all the people that we know to be with him. And Jesus uses this parable to articulate that's the depths of our heart. Because don't you see The younger brother is not just in the story. We are the younger brother. We are the prodigal son. The younger son's story is our story. We were all once lost in a far off country. We were once in great need. Our longings were not met and we jumped from person to person and thing to thing and we wanted to be known but were rejected and when we showed who we really were, we were loved but always wondered if they would love us if they truly knew us and Jesus wants to remind you and me that God is in the business of saving sinners and will continue to save them because even as Christians, we can revert back to prodigal tendencies. Henry Nouwen said it like this, I am the prodigal son every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. See, the heart of evangelism is not to love people more. The heart of evangelism isn't to find a new curriculum, a new path, a new way to share your faith. The heart of evangelism stems from God's radical love you. Our loving pursuit of the lost, of non-believers, is fueled by God's loving pursuit of us. So you know, let me just tell you, let them call us arrogant. Let them call us foolish. Let them call us whatever they want to call us, but we know humanity is in a great need, but that we have a greater Savior. Let them say whatever they want because what they are yearning for is what we already have. The love of the Father. The love of the Father. You see, the beautiful part of this story, see, in each of these parables, Josh, you might have come a little too early because I'm still going, bro. I just... (laughs) The beautiful part of of this parable... It's actually really different than the other two because there's a whole other portion that we didn't, we're not covering tonight. 
But there's this elder brother, and he, he's, just, he's just angry. It's the Pharisees. He's trying to say that they're the Pharisees, and they're angry, and they don't understand, and whatever. But it leaves the ending open-ended. <laughs> you see, in the, other, in the other parables, someone goes in search for them. The shepherd goes in search for the sheep. The woman goes in search for the coin. Who does the searching in this story? It doesn't say anybody searched. It just said that the son was lost and now he was found. I wonder if that's because what Jesus is hoping for both the Pharisees and for us to see is that Jesus has come to save, to seek, and to save the lost. See, Jesus is the true and better brother. Jesus is the true and better savior. He would come out to the far land where we were. He would come out and clothe us. He would call him out and feed us. He would come out and say, come back to the father's house. Because for Jesus, it wasn't satisfactory just to say, hey, we're gonna welcome you. He said, I'm gonna come and get you. Just, just think about that for one moment. I'm not selling you on evangelism. I'm reminding you of the beauty of Jesus. That while we were lost, he was searching. And then when we were found, he celebrates. He celebrates every time we come back. So let me just for a moment ask you, if you are here, I'm not, even, and I'm not even worrying about evangelism. If you are here and you, if this is like the first time you've kind of heard this version of the gospel, I, let me just tell you, the Father's love is for you. If you've come in this place and thinking, man, I've sinned too much. I've outsinned the love of God. Just here to remind you that it's not true. The Father's love is for you where you sit right here, right now. It's for you. And Jesus' invitation is to come, let's, let's just come home. Come with me and we'll go to the Father and we'll have a feast. And it's something that we can do every day. So what's left for us tonight? Knowing that our love, our evangelism, our sharing the gospel is propelled by God's love for us, what do we do now? Simple. We join Jesus in what he's already doing. Tim Keller says, God does not merely send the church on mission. God is already on mission. We just gotta go up and join him. And that's what he's asking of us. Our communities, our families, our friends, they're in great need. And they need to hear about a greater love that eclipses their sin and brokenness. Jesus is inviting you to come home. As you call others to come home, he's calling prodigals. Which, by the way, is a terrible way to call the the parable, because prodigal is someone who lavish, just lives lavishly, but it's actually better, I think, understood as the parable of the prodigal father. Because the father stopped at nothing to shower his son with love and compassion. He gave his clothes off his back. He took blame. He shamed himself so that his son would be welcomed back home. So tonight... I'm not even telling you for tomorrow or for next week. I just want you for tonight. Run to the Father and let his love propel you to tell others of his love. Maybe the second half is too much. Let me just say this. 
Just run back to the Father tonight. Let yourself be loved by him. That's it. Let yourself be loved by the Father tonight. Let's pray. What else is there to be said, Father? What else is there to be done? Nothing. Because on the cross of Calvary, you paid it all. There's no fee. There's no secret code. You declared it on the cross. All are welcome. Come home. So God, I pray for this community. I pray for myself. That we would keep coming home to you. And that we would invite those around us to come meet the Father. And that this church, Mosaic Church, I'm even just praying for young adults, that this church, this body, this family of love and faith would demonstrate to the world a love that is unlike anything else. A love that is by definition otherworldly. And that for the first time, they will be met with that love. God, I pray. Use us as your instrument and as your vessels. But as we do that, may we never forget to come home ourselves. We love because you first loved us. Let us just full stop there for tonight, Father. Teach us the other things later, but for right now, teach us how to be loved by you. In your name we pray. Amen. Before we sing together, and then we're about to, so I'm gonna invite you to stand. I just want you to take a moment. We really believe in prayer here. We love praying for one another and for, for God to show up, for your spirit to move. There's something really powerful when we pray for each other. And so what I'm gonna ask of you for just a moment, if you're sitting alone, just find someone next to you. Just pray that for just right now, you'd experience the overwhelming, beautiful love of God. He desires that for you. He's not holding himself back. Sometimes we withhold ourselves from it. So before we sing this song, we're going to sing Run to the Father, and it's going to be awesome, and I, I know I'm going to cry, and it's going to be cool. But before we do that, as a community, would we just desire for one another to experience the love of the Father? Like, like I don't want us inviting other people to know the Father's love. We're not even praying for ourselves. Let, let's pray for each other as brothers and sisters to meet with the Father. Be like Jesus. And go and seek. Just bow your heads. Grab the person next to you and just pray for them, whoever it might be. Whenever the band's ready, we can sing together. Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use this message you just received and direct your heart completely towards Him. If you want to hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.